This week on the Scrib Chat Podcast. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Scrib Chat Podcast. My name is David Pemberton, and what you just heard is from the trailer for the upcoming film Annihilation, which premieres on February 23rd and is directed by Alex Garland and is based on the superlative novel by Jeff Vandermeer. Vandermeer is, of course, a leading voice in the world of modern science fiction. His books often extend the genre with poetic prose that is at once horrifying and strangely kind of didactic. That's not to say that Vandermeer's writing is preachy. I've read several of his books, and they never even get close. But his work tends to point the reader towards certain conclusions. After reading Annihilation, which, by the way, is the first in a trilogy known as the Southern Reach Trilogy, I started recycling and reusing water bottles and conserving power at my apartment. Trust me, all you have to do is read Vandermeer's work, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Vandermeer about Annihilation, as well as his novel Born and an upcoming novella called The Strange Bird. Each is a fantastic piece of weird fiction, for lack of a better term, and each proves that Vandermeer is not only an adept writer, but that science fiction is a legitimate literary art form. That's why I'm so laughably excited to see Annihilation on the big screen, and even more excited to share with you the conversation that I had with Jeff Vandermeer. Enjoy. There's definitely a lot to talk about, but I wanted to start with the upcoming film adaptation of your novel, Annihilation. Specifically, sort of, how did that process begin for you, and and what was your reaction when you were first approached? Well, it all kind of happened in a way that was invisible to me. Uh, My editor at FSG passed the manuscript of Annihilation on to Scott Rudin at lunch, uh, the producer. And before I knew it, there was a deal with Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then they attached Alex Garland as the director. And um, yeah. as you might imagine, uh, the writer doesn't really have any control or anything. Alex Garland was kind enough to keep me in the loop by sending me the screenplay and, and letting me know how things were developing kind of after the fact. Mm-hmm. So I got to I think it's useful when it's your first time with this experience to kind of just like observe be- behind the scenes since you don't have any control anyway and just kind of <laughs> learn learn from it. So um so it's been quite fascinating. Yeah, how how did that how did that feel kind of watching your novel sort of evolve into what will become the movie? Was that a comfortable experience for you or was that kind of difficult to do or or how did that feel? I think that any time there's this kind of translation or transition and you have a filmmaker who has a very strong vision that it's going to be a combination of things. I think one thing that helps is that there are so many expeditions described in the novel. So to me, the movie is kind of like, you know, bits and pieces of different expeditions, not necessarily all based on annihilation um it's been up and down you know it's been kind of a roller coaster but that's not a bad thing it's just the way that the process is you know there's there's things that are faithful in tone to the books 
that I'm appreciative of. There's a scene in there that Alex wrote that isn't in the books that I really wish I had thought of that, that really <laughs> fits the, the tone of the books. And then there are ways it deviates and things that are, of course, lost in the translation that you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you kind of mourn. But mostly it's, it's a learning experience. And uh, then you move on to the next thing, having, having had that experience and being better able to, to uh, kind of maneuver in that world. Yeah, sure. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Alex Garland as the director, and I think the last movie he released was Ex Machina, uh, mm-hmm. but before that was, in my opinion, the severely underrated Sunshine. And I, I when I heard he was directing this, I got really excited because I felt like he was, you know, kind of the perfect director to tackle Annihilation, which, you know, having read it a few years ago when it came out, I, I always thought of it as an incredibly difficult book to adapt to film. But that kind of brings me to uh, something I was thinking about, which is, for you, are there any book-to-film adaptations that you really like or that you've uh, looked to in the past and thought, you know, that was well done? That's a really, really good question. I really haven't thought about that. I'm, I mostly look at film in terms of what it, what it itself is doing and don't really mm-hmm. think about the source material. I'm a huge film buff, and I actually study film quite avidly for mm. what I would call acts of translation back into fiction because I think film gets a bad rap. It's, sure. you know, a lot of times creative writing instructors uh, kind of uh, grumble about how, you know, there are so many more jump cuts in fiction because of film <laughs> as if that's the only thing film has to offer. But if you study like a Stanley Kubrick film or you study, you know, the structure of certain really interesting, interesting, films you can learn a lot especially because when you bring that back into fiction it changes fundamentally and so, and so I, I do you know since I, I read a lot and I watch a lot of film I do try to bring those acts of translation back I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a, a faithful translation of a, of a book into film and I don't know I've been watching a lot of Netflix series lately like uh, Dark, sure. Dark this German series it's an intricate combination of, of kind of like a mystery family drama and time travel that, that's absolutely amazing but I think it's an original. Uh, so, so I, I honestly, I just can't can't think of anything right now. You know, you mentioned Netflix. The first one that comes to mind for me is Mindhunter, which I believe was a book, and mm-hmm. I've not read it, but the series was great. So, the series is amazing. It's a very yeah. lar- layered series. I, it, it's a really useful um, for writers to study that to just show how many different ways they layer in different kinds of points of interest and in plot uh, using. You know, I mean, it could have just been a drama about these FBI agents. It could have been a drama about mm-hmm. current cases. It could have been a drama about interviewing these these murderers who are already in jail. And yet they combine all of those things into something that's coherent and multi-layered and very, very rich. Yeah, I agree. Maybe maybe that's the secret to a good adaptation mm-hmm. is that the end product is just quality. And it's funny. I actually got an email from the guy who wrote that book um, recently oh. saying that he'd seen my praise for the series and he was thrilled by it because he was a big fan of Annihilation. So <laughs> I just got that last week. That's so cool. You know, kind of speaking of that, have you, have you ever had any interest in, in writing specifically for film yourself? I've been negotiating that distance because mm. I primarily want to remain a novelist but I do have some interest in film and TV, and partly it's because I'm a very visual person, even in my, my fiction writing, and, and also mm-hmm. because there's certain ideas that I get, and I kind of usually have the opposite of writer's block. I have too many things <laughs> that I can't I can't develop them all at once, um, and some of those ideas to me are better suited for graphic novels, are better suited for TV because of mm-hmm. you know the the pacing of a limited series, and some of them for film. And so I have I, I really can't talk about a lot of the projects, but like I've just turned in. Uh, 
treatment for a TV series that I'm hopeful will get off the ground. And oh, great. there's also uh, some film stuff. And uh, I'm inching my way up to the screenwriting. I feel like there needs to be a transition <laughs> because I've never done a screenplay before. So what I've been doing sure. is treatments and then hopefully teaming up with a screenwriter who will take, you know, like the beats and progressions of the story, mm-hmm. turn it into a screenplay or a teleplay. And then, then I study that. I'm very good at like what you might call mimicry um, and mm-hmm. inhabiting that and then reverse engineering it back so I can actually kind of organically write a screenplay. So, so I am inching closer to that. That's, uh, that's really neat. And that's a really interesting process. You know, with Annihilation, uh, I know it hits uh, theaters on February 23rd. And mm-hmm. I did read that Born has been optioned as well. Yeah, Born's been optioned. There's a YA series that I'm working on that's been optioned. And there's a couple of other things in the work. Yeah. Yeah, you're a busy guy. So congratulations on that, first and foremost. Oh, but, thanks. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you, with all that going on, like, uh, how do you feel your role and experience as an author has changed or, or maybe evolved now that your stories are sort of being adapted for different mediums? I don't really see it as that different as before. I mean, there used to be an illustrative component to some of my novels. I've done coffee table books where there is a pairing of text and image. That's not the same thing as mm-hmm. as TV, but it, it's getting closer to it. Uh, and I've also always had multiple projects going on, you know, doing nonfiction books at the same time as novels and uh, and also running a publishing company and, and whatnot wow. and being an art director for that publishing company. So so I just see it as, as a different phase of the same thing. I've been doing all along. How do you how do you keep on top of all that stuff? How do you stay productive and and, and keep everything in line? Because it sounds like you're just doing so much stuff. Well, I mean, it'll sound weird, but the older I get, the I mean, weirdly simple or weirdly stupid, but the older (laughs) I get, I don't drink very much. I exercise every day. And I don't uh, stay up past midnight. <laughs> and honestly, it's it's more about immersing yourself in and thinking about what it is, what the creative project is, than worrying about the amount of time that you're actually sitting down and, and, and writing it. Mm-hmm. This novel that I'm just finishing up now, I would say I'm writing maybe two hours a day, but the rest of the time I'm accumulating so many inspirations and scene sure. fragments as I'm just walking around, you know, and doing other stuff that by nighttime I have like two or three hours worth of notes to type up off mm. these little pieces of paper and notebooks and so so really it's just making sure that you have the headspace devoted to something and then finding the transition point like if i'm working on two or three projects at once i might work at a coffee shop in the morning i might come back and work on something else in my office in the afternoon go for a hike and then find a third location or sit at the kitchen table at night and do the other one and and just finding those kinds of um, uh, ways to kind of um, keep the project separate it may just seem like a trick, but they work really well. It almost sounds like a, kind of like this really natural flow. Like you don't really force yourself to work on one specific project at a time, maybe. But No, no, it's absolutely true. And, and some of my best work has come from procrastinating on things that I have <laughs> deadlines for. And I've just learned that my subconscious is it's better. You know, like when I was working on um, I was working on a novella called Strange Bird, which is a mm-hmm. sequel to Born that's coming out from FSG as a book this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, as procrastination, I wrote this story called This World is Full of Monsters. And I worked a little bit on it each night. And the same thing's happening now. I, I finished a, a short novel called uh, Subject 680 that has nothing to do with any of the stuff I'm working on. But before I went to bed I, each night the last few months, I just had this notebook and I just kept writing scenes for like half an hour before bedtime. So it, right now, at least for whatever reason, it, it's more the frustration of not being able to get everything out and making sure, sure I document the notes on the things I can't get to right away more than worrying about there being too much stuff. I, I, I really love writing, so it, it doesn't it's not it doesn't phase me. Yeah, it, you know, it, the the older I get as well, the 
the the more concerned I am with how few hours there are in the day. Mm. Uh, last last week I tried to get some writing done while exercising, which yeah. was just a horrible mistake. Yeah. It didn't. Not at all. Well, I actually write a lot in the gym because when I'm weightlifting, yeah. you have to concentrate on that and be in the moment. And in a way, you get away from the problem you were mm-hmm. working on, but your subconscious is still working on it. And so it's like misdirection. You look in a different direction, and suddenly the inspiration comes that you were you were trying too consciously to work on. Uh, so so I get a lot of, I get a lot of ideas when I uh, go yeah. to Anne, go to Anne's synagogue because you specifically cannot write when you're in the main area of the synagogue. <laughs> so of course my brain is contrary and wants to rebel against that, and I get tons <laughs> of ideas, and I wind up running into the bathroom to write them down. So I have no idea what the congregation thinks uh, is going on with me running yeah. to the bathroom every few minutes. But yeah, maybe you just came to the synagogue extremely well hydrated. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, one thing, one thing your books are all known for. One thing your writing is known for is all of the great ideas kind of held within them. You know, you were kind of mentioning that earlier. Annihilation, for example, um, in, in the entire Southern Reach trilogy, really deals with certain ecological themes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, arguably global warming, but it never really reads as didactic or as preachy or anything like that. So, w- when you're writing that, like, what, what do you hope, if anything, that your readers take away from your work, given that it's not like a preachy novel? Well, I mean, you know, there's a there's a difference too between novels and short fiction. Like I have, a, I had a, a story out uh, last year called Trumpland about an amusement park in the shape of yeah. Trump's reclining body, and um, that's <laughs> fairly didactic. But it sure. also was something I was only living with for a short time. When you live with something for a long time, the difficulty with it being didactic is you have to live with that didactic quality and that kind of preachy tone. And and you know, first of all, that it's not going to sit well with readers. And secondly, it doesn't sit well with you while you're trying to write it. There's no subtlety to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what your what your what my hope is is simply that by getting a reader to be immersed in the worlds I'm creating and and interested in the characters and stories, that the themes and whatnot may make them think afterwards and i don't mean like a climate change denier but i do think that and i know this because i've had emails and 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 tweets from people who who have said this to me that you know they it raises awareness for the person who says they believe in science and in global warming and climate change but they think it's going to happen 40 years from now Mm -hmm. and so they're not really doing anything about it they don't feel energized to do anything about it and so i have heard from several people and my hope is that 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 person does read it and thinks about it and it it makes them you know want to go out and maybe do something in their local community as well as doing something more macro because i really sure. think it's important uh, on the local level that you find something environmentally that that's close to your heart that's very personal to you i think that that also then reflects how you can talk about it to other people and hopefully make them passionate about it mm-hmm. as you as you were uh, saying all that it made me think about one of my favorite things one of my favorite aspects of uh, specifically the Southern Reach trilogy, and I think it's a little bit inborn as well, but one thing that strikes me is that your stories, they're not really about humans destroying nature necessarily, but rather like nature destroying humans. Almost well, trans- as if transforming humans. Trans- say, yeah, all right, more. transforming humans, sometimes from the perspective of the humans in horrifying ways. <laughs> but um, for you, why is that uh, perspective important? Well, I mean, a lot of this just kind of comes out organically, but then, you know, you study enough weird biology and weird science, and then also just the fact that the difference between um, inside and outside is really blurred if you study bacteria and microbes. I mean, we're all crawling with bacteria. There's all this stuff that's foreign to our body that's actually helping keep us alive. Yeah. And and so if you think about it in that way, we're already kind of being transformed every day anyway. And one thing that I really want to do in the books is I want people to 
hopefully re-examine the way they see the world, mm -hmm. even the most mundane thing when they step out into their front yard and really see what, what it is that's there. And, and if I step out in my front yard right now, there's going to be, you know, all these chemical trails, pheromone trails from <laughs> ants that I can't see. There's going to be pollutants in the air and in the ground that I can't see. There's the communication of birds. I mean, they recently just discovered that birds can actually communicate a message through song directly to another individual of their species by a slight mm -hmm. modulation in the tone. So that's very sophisticated. That's a that's an actual conversation yeah. of a kind. And so there's all this stuff going on. And I feel like if we're more aware of it, we become more connected. And that's important because there's all these complex natural systems that we're destroying without understanding understanding them at a, at, a, at a time when if we would just redirect our technology to take advantage of these systems and work with them, you know, mm -hmm. and I say that and some people think, oh, he's a kind of a hippy-dippy tree hugger who wants to go back to the Stone Age. And that's that's not it at all. I mean, one, one great example of, of soft tech that should be more monetized is there's a mushroom now that, that these guys have, have grown that can replace styrofoam. So you could just toss it, the packing material in your backyard and it biodegrades in a, in a few weeks. And that's an example of working with a natural system that is basically about replacing something we use with something that's less harmful to the environment. And, and the more we do that, work with the systems that are already in place that we really need to for our own survival, the better off we'll be. And it's much more complex and less simplistic than this us against them kind of thing that I see a lot, mm -hmm. uh, where it's all or nothing. And we just need to make sure that our public policy is more reflective of the actual world we live in. Uh, yeah, definitely. We, you know, Scrib, our, our headquarters are here in San Francisco, California, and I moved out here from Tennessee. And as you can imagine, mm, in Tennessee, mm -hmm. there's not a huge emphasis on recycling or yeah, composting. Yeah. But when I got out here, I was amazed that everywhere there were three different trash bins. There was mm -hmm. landfill, recycling, and composting. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks ago, we had a man from the state come in and explain to us how composting worked here. And I was mm -hmm. kind of blown away by the technological aspect of it, which is they compile all of the compost and then they introduce these microbial bacteria mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. that eat and heat it up to yeah. over like 160 degrees for a period of about <laughs> 90 days. And then that compost is what they yeah. give to farmers who then use to grow all of America's food. And that just, that to me is so smart and makes so much sense when laid out that it's feels criminal that not every place makes that a requirement. And that's why I talk in terms of inefficiencies and bad mm -hmm. business, because there's a lot of people that we think of as good businessmen who are not calculating in the hidden costs of how they're doing business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the example you give is a great one is more of that will get us closer to pushing past this crisis point we're at. And also it's more ethical. You know, it's more yeah. it, it makes more sense in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it just it all around seems so beneficial in every front. I, I couldn't really conceive a negative. Of course, the man speaking to us was uh, maybe biased, but again, <laughs> it, it just it makes so much sense. But steering back a little bit, mm -hmm. um, do, do you hope that, and I'm sure you've probably seen a screener of the film, but do you hope that the film uh, adaptation kind of carries through some of these themes that you're talking about? Or is it more of the old man in the sea where... You know, the fish is the fish and the old man is the man. <laughs> um, I've seen a rough cut. And uh, yeah. I would say that 
the texture and tone of the film is very faithful to the book. Mm. I would say that, and Alex Garland has said this himself in interviews, so, you know, that a lot of the environmental themes have kind of fallen out of the film. He's, he's very interested in the kind of doppelganger and doubling aspects. Sure. And uh, that doesn't mean the film's any less surreal. But then there's also this weird thing that even with the publication of the books, I sometimes feel like the discussion around the books about environmental issues and the chances I've gotten to talk, you know, about these issues and storytelling may be even more beneficial than the effect of the books themselves. So the books sure. generate this effect. The movie will generate that effect indirectly regardless. And uh, a certain percentage of all proceeds from Annihilation book sales go to environmental causes at this point. So so that that's all to the good as well. Yeah, that's great, especially with I I'm, believe that there's going to be a reprint of Annihilation with the uh, movie book cover, the movie book tie-in reprint. Sure, although it's it's quite fascinating to me how even just the trailers had such a significant uptick in 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 readers acquiring the book, so it's it's already had an effect. Well, it was it's a damn fine trailer. I actually just watched it before calling you. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, definitely. Well, one of my favorite things about Annihilation and the rest of the Southern Reach trilogy as well is your use of symbolism. So I do have a few just a few quick questions on that. First, uh, kind of what we were speaking to earlier. Why is it always such a bad idea to take technology into Area X? Well, I, th I think basically it kind of comes back to those complex systems, even though Area X is not in itself natural in that basically what's happening is every time they bring in more advanced tech, Area X uh, or whatever's behind it sees that as actually very primitive, but it's just another way to hack into the humans who are on the expeditions. Mm. And I think that's pretty clear, um, yeah. it, even though it's just implied. I think it's said. It's, it's a hypothesis in, in authority. And, and so uh, I was trying to make a point about the fact that, that a smartphone is still pretty dumb compared to, I don't know, a fungal tree communication system, for example, for sure. uh, and yeah. very inefficient. And, and, and so that was one thing. Another thing, quite frankly, is it's really boring to, to uh, deal with texts and things like that in novels. Mm -hmm. But I thought it would create kind of an alienating, weird effect to have the hypnosis and not have modern tech and be kind of an interesting effect. The idea that it was hacking this stuff, that it just made it easier, the more sophisticated it was. And I think that also pertains to things we see now, like the horrifying idea of your fridge, your self-aware fridge being hijacked um, and used to surveil you, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that should not happen, you know? But, you know, so, um, so in a weird way, even as we become, quote unquote, more advanced, we've opened ourselves up <laughs> things that yeah, would have been no. imaginable 30 years ago. <laughs> My fridge is spying on me. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's definitely a weird concept. It's weird. Uh, I, I think I saw this the other day on Reddit. It was a shower thought, but someone said, I have a cold box to keep all of my food fresh inside of my hot box, which I live in, that keeps me safe from the coldness from outside. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, <laughs> and then the weirdness that it took a god awful long time for me and my wife to figure out how to make my computer completely off the internet just so I could get my writing done without any distraction. It's like it's not built that way. I mean, I went to Sprint to try to get my phone so it would just be just a phone. Just a phone. And it was impossible. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, using my phone as a phone is the last thing I use my phone for. I know, for. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I get too easily distracted and fragmented. So, so sure, it's very yeah. important to me not to walk around with, with a computer <laughs> in my pocket, basically. Yeah, I, I fully understand that. Uh, another question I have is why do so many of the characters... They, they just refuse to use their actual names, especially when they go into Area X. 
Well, I think that um, in Annihilation, it explains that this is something that the Southern Reach has hit upon because they're desperate, mm-hmm. which is to say that they keep having problems with the expeditions uh, that they send in being radically altered or slaughtered or, or coming back terribly deranged. And so they keep doing different things, like they send in a team that's all men, and they now mm-hmm. they've sent in a team that's all women, uh, and they've, they've depersonalized them as a way of protection. I mean, it's almost like a, a protection against hacking. The more individual details there are, the more they're convinced that that these mines are more or less being hacked once they go into Area X, to, to put it crudely. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that that is one explanation that's given. That's the, like the, the surface explanation. I personally like the effect for two reasons. One, it sublimates the characters more into the landscape, especially because I give no physical details in the first book of, of, of who they are, what they look like. And then secondly, I really like the idea of these women because women, especially in male novelists' uh, books, are often stereotypically presented uh, being judged simply by what they do and what they say. Uh, mm-hmm. no other factors. And, and so all of those things came into play. And then the other thing is that quite simply, the more I tried to give them names, the less I knew them as characters. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes you need that distancing. Whereas in Born, my last novel, mm-hmm. I needed the distancing of calling it the city and the company and giving the characters names. But the more I tried to name the company or the city, the less I knew about those places, and the less real they were. So sometimes it's just a, a matter of what distance you need or, or, or your entry point into things, uh, at least for me. Sure. Kind of, kind of following up with that as well. I'm sure you've maybe heard this parallel be, be drawn before, but when I first read Annihilation, it felt like what I wanted the TV show Lost to be. And what, what's great is all of the the whole Southern Reach trilogy, if I'm not mistaken, came out in one year, so we're kind of able to to get uh, you know through the narrative a little bit more quickly than TV show. But I still it didn't stop me from creating my own kind of hypotheses around what was going on. And one thing I'm kind of surprised about is that I don't see a lot of discussion about Area X being either a portal or a time warp into space or, or anything like that. Well, maybe because that's a little bit of a spoiler, but... <laughs> um, okay. but um, or at least possible hypothesis spoiler. Yeah. I, I think if you're talking about it in relation to Lost, I think I saw the first episode of Lost and that was it. Oh, really? Um, but what's quite fascinating to me, I, I don't know why it didn't catch on with me, but, but what's fascinating to me is that for that minority of readers who haven't liked the series, it's because they feel like Lost cheated them and mm-hmm. then that Area X cheated them with not enough explanations. But the the fact of the matter is that Area X was always planned out that way, whereas Lost, as far as I can tell from the articles online, just never had a master plan. Yeah. Um, whereas Area X is always supposed to be an explana- uh, exploration of something that cannot be known. So I have an obligation as the writer not to give every answer at the end because that just wouldn't make sense for the themes or, or the, sure. where the characters are in relation to the mystery. Though one funny thing is that I was working on Authority edits um, and also acceptance uh, when some initial commentary advanced reviews uh, advanced readers of uh, Annihilation had come out so I was still doing a little bit of work on it and so initially the island <laughs> that's in acceptance was in authority as kind of like a jokey nod to Lost uh, <laughs> because of those advanced readers of, of Annihilation and then it actually became part of the narrative <laughs> in acceptance <laughs> in a totally different way from Lost that's great um, but so there is that small connection but it wasn't from actually watching the series that, that's really interesting um i you know i was a big fan of the series it did break my heart i, I liked it up until the very last episode mm-hmm. 
But when I would tell other people and I was, you know, giving annihilation to friends of mine, the way I would explain it was it's like lost, but it won't hurt you. Like it's good. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it makes a promise and it delivers on it. Yeah. And I feel, you know, even though you don't get all the answers, I don't think that was my problem with loss. My problem with loss was that they mm. provided answers and they made oh, absolutely they no good. sense. Yeah. So that's yeah. the other thing is, um, and, and one thing that I did like enjoy about writing Annihilation is knowing it was part of a series. I knew mm-hmm. that some of the mysteries would be revealed to not be about Area X, but about Southern Reach's paranoia and then also about secrets that the characters are, are carrying. So I didn't have the onus of everything in Annihilation being explained by Area X's sure. activity. And, and that that was, I thought, really interesting to explore. Um, and then the other thing that's quite hilarious to me is that Authority is, I think, a very claustrophobic and paranoid middle mm-hmm. novel. Mm-hmm. And there are readers who come out of that into acceptance unwilling to believe any answer they get in acceptance because they've been <laughs> yeah, made so sure. paranoid. So, yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah. I had the same reaction of just not knowing who was what and who was saying who and who was real. Very disorienting, but that's that's what I loved about it. It was a, a little bit of chaos that we got to explore. The funny thing about Authority is that it's meant in part to be a black comedy, and and and, and uh, it doesn't really. If you've ever been, if you've ever worked in a state agency or in government, um, I think it's perhaps darkly funnier than if you haven't uh, yeah. but but I was in Washington DC for a reading and I did have a fairly high up member of the EPA at that time come up to me and say it was one of the funniest books she'd ever read <laughs> uh, which was both you know uh, I was flattered and horrified at the same time yeah. you know so because sure, was depicted sure. in there I always thought and I don't know if this was a misreading or not so I'm almost hesitant to say it but I always thought it was funny that for that book the main character's name was Control and that just was the last thing that he actually had any of. Like, Yeah, and it might be a little obvious, but and there's other things I find kind of cautiously humorous because the joke mm-hmm. is that he never really gets to like the meetings he's going to. It's like you see yeah. him in the <laughs> corridor and then it cuts to after. And that's yeah. in part because to me, he's more terrified of reporting back to the voice than he is about anything that's going to happen in the meeting. So for me, it was more dramatic, but it was also kind of funnier just knowing some of the bureaucratic snarl that goes on in some of these places to present it that way. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I love my job here at Scribd, of course, but I definitely I definitely have had that that emotion at other jobs, other less fulfilling jobs, I'll say. So I have one more question about the Southern Reach trilogy, and I want to talk a little bit about some of your other works. But um, again, I I apologize if you get asked this all the time, but if, if given the opportunity, would you actually walk into Area X? And if it helps, I already have my answer and it is hell no. Well, I mean, I think if I was able to, um, uh, had the possibility of getting back out again, I probably would. You know, the other thing about it that's kind of funny is that some of the things that seem a little uncanny and weird uh, actually can happen to you in, in North Florida. Like, you can have a, a, a kind of strange bore charge mm-hmm. you from a long distance and have time to think about what you're going to do. <laughs> and uh, you do see dolphins up in the freshwater canals here uh, at high tide coming in to grab fish, which can be very disconcerting at first because you don't expect yeah. it. You know, I mean, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think, um, I guess it would depend on how how, <laughs> how bad things were on the outside and, and what my purpose was in going and in, 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 in what I could possibly yeah. add. I mean, there no, I don't think there have been any writers on previous expeditions and there might be a reason for that. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. Uh, and of course, the linguist uh, tried to go, but you know. <laughs> yeah. It never seems to work out. <laughs> 
but uh uh all right so so after the southern reach trilogy you published uh born Mm -hmm. which i believe will be published in paperback on february 27th which is the same date as the strange bird yes that's correct and uh i actually was lucky enough i'm not sure if you're aware but your publicist sent me an advanced copy of the strange bird i got to read it over the weekend i hope that's a good thing (laughs) it is a good thing it was great i was really excited about it but you know, it's interesting to me because where where Bourne is told from uh, a human character named Rachel, from her perspective, mm-hmm. uh, the strange bird is told by well, the strange bird. So, so what was it like writing from the perspective of something, as you put it, that was part bird, part human, and mm-hmm. part many other things? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, first of all, you can't truly inhabit a non-human point of view. It, it's mm. it's interesting to try, uh, and so that's why it kind of hedges the bet with it being part human, because that gives me the go-ahead to do some things in a normal way. Because otherwise, what you'd have would be completely unreadable, probably. But I did think about certain things, like the fact that a bird, certain birds, think of the world world vertically. That I can even observe in the behavior of the birds that are feeders in the back and front yard, certain different ways that they perceive their territory that human beings don't. So there's that. There's also, I see too many times in works of fiction, animal points of view where they thank human beings or seem forgiving of human beings for things that if you just thought for a second that the animal in the story, if you just replaced them with a human being, you'd be absolutely horrified at that attitude. (laughs) Um, And so I want to be very, very certain about making sure that the bird is not very forgiving of some of the things that happened to it. There was that. Uh, Then there's just simply, you know, it's not just a bird. It's a particular bird. Mm-hmm. And so then you're still thinking about character in the same same kind of way. And I thought that this this particular bird would be kind of an earnest and a very straightforward bird, so to speak. And I thought that was very important to kind of balance against the strangeness of the situation. And it just came, I don't know, it was one of those things that came very organically to me again. And I just kind of wrote it in a fever dream over <laughs> over a few weeks. And it seemed right. Yeah, it, it, I really, I really appreciated the internal monologue of the strange bird, and I don't want to give too much away for anyone who hasn't read it as of this listening. But um, yeah, it was really disturbing at parts, uh, and, and kind of eye-opening. Specifically, um, just seeing things, maybe even I'll just say vaguely, pet ownership from the vantage of the pet. Well, I think also um, there's an issue of trauma that occurs both in born and in. Uh, in different ways, in Born mm-hmm. and Strange Bird. And so there are some disturbing bits because I, I think when you deal with trauma and the after effects of trauma, you need to be serious about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Rachel goes through a certain trauma in Born and it lingers and resonates. Uh, it doesn't just go away. Uh, and I think those are the things that kind of anchor it. And, and also the things that oddly, even though they're disturbing, can make, I think, these, these stories that might otherwise seem outlandish more relatable because other pe- people have gone through these things, whether it's a minor or, or a major thing, that they can mm-hmm. identify with it to some degree. I had an email about the strange bird where a woman told me that the whole experience between the strange bird the musician, and the magician mm-hmm. reminded her of a, a controlling situation, not obviously physically the way it is in the book but she she said that the emotion and the the whole situation rang very true to her and i was um you know that 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 had nothing to do with whether it was narrated by a bird or not but it was just that the scenes worked for her no matter how disturbing they were yeah and uh i definitely i i feel like the relationship a little bit earlier in the book between the strange bird and the old man really felt like 
maybe you'd call it a toxic codependent relationship. Yeah. yeah and something where you see, unfortunately, I mean, just a, sometimes in books and also in TV, the unexamined nature of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, in authority, there's ghost bird, the double of mm-hmm. the biologist being interrogated by control. And I did have some readers who were mad at me that in acceptance, they didn't have a romance. Even hmm. though the power dynamic is that of prisoner and uh, and guard, basically, mm-hmm. you know that the power dynamic is such that that would be really truly awful. Yeah, you know, so so it's interesting how stuff like that gets interpreted. You see it in writing workshops sometimes where somebody has written a story about someone they think is a good person, and you have to gently point out that by their actions they're a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's an interesting effect. Uh, I was um, I was watching an old. Uh, James Bond movie uh, a couple weeks ago just had it on in the background while I was uh, doing some work and there's this scene where he is for lack of a better term seducing a woman and she obviously doesn't want to be kissed and then he holds her down and kisses her and then that like initiates this passionate romance and in my head I was just like oh my god I can't believe when I was a kid that I thought James Bond was an okay dude yeah there's there's a fair amount of creepy disturbing yeah. stuff in those movies <laughs> it comes it comes back true. yeah yeah speaking of perspective uh and, and you mentioned rachel a few times for for born specifically why did you think it was important to tell the story from her perspective instead of born himself well i mean there it's because the non-human perspective of born exists in several different dimensions in a sense i mean mm-hmm. You even get the sense he's receiving information from another place entirely at one point, and he has senses that are not human senses, and I think it would have been confusing. I also think that he's actually an oddly passive, has a passive role to begin with, Mm -hmm. and so Rachel has a more active role as the scavenger who finds him. And also, you know, sometimes it's just what the genesis of the novel is. I mean, the the genesis of that novel is that I had this image in my head of this woman reaching out to something that looked like a sea anemone, but wasn't, (laughs) and plucking it from what at first I thought was seaweed. But then, as this kind of vision in my head played out, it turned out it was the fur of a giant bear, that the Mm. sea anemone was actually intelligent, that the reason she picked it up is that it reminded her of the island nation that she had come from. And then the bear flew away, and that kind of blew my mind. I had to decide for a long time if I was if the bear was actually going to fly or not. <laughs> um, but you know, so all those things came together, and then at a certain point, after thinking about it, I had some general idea of how it was going to end because I can never really start something and finish it without having some kind of ending, even if it changes along the way. Um, but so that character came to me very, very vividly. And the fact of the matter is that although it's never named, and it's another one of those never named things that sure. make a huge difference. She is, you know, a lot of the stuff that she recounts as her background is from the Fiji Islands or from the South Pacific where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I've never been able to write about that directly, I think, because even though I was there for five years as a kid, you know, I was more than a tourist, but I was less than a citizen. And so I knew it, but I didn't know it as intimately as someone who lived there. And so even even as a kid, I was kind of cautious about writing about it. And so I had to find the right distance. And so being able to make it a nameless country, but still use some of my memories of living there was the right and appropriate distance and was useful for her backstory and kind of fit into the climate change themes of the book. Yeah. As you mentioned, she she finds Bourne and, and Bourne kind of grows throughout the, the book. And you, you kind of describe him as, as growing in size and in intelligent, but also in hunger. And um, what really struck me is when he starts absorbing human beings 
and then kind of casually explains Spoiler. that they're not dead. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I guess I <laughs> you scared me so bad. If anyone makes it this long in the podcast okay. and no hasn't worries. felt spoiled, well, I mean, there's a lot of spoilers <laughs> on almost every page of that book, anyway. So sure, yeah, it's yeah, it's layered. But it kind of—I I don't know. This is too far of a stretch, and I don't know if you see a lot of straight connections between Boren and the Southern Reach trilogy. But to me, it felt like whatever the crawler is from Area X, <clears throat> if at a very young age had been like given some sense of morality, would have grown to be Boren. I actually just think that um, I really like squid and other cephalopods and sea creatures, <laughs> and so sometimes they recur in different books. So there's really no connection except the physical description, perhaps, um, sure. a little bit. I also, and also, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on there because early on you realize that Bourne can manipulate his scent to reflect what he thinks the person he's talking to will find pleasant. And so there's mm. the suggestion that Bourne on, in the fur of Mord, the giant bear, was actually manipulating Rachel. So there's this other thing going on where, you know, it, it's it, 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 he's definitely a different type of organism. And so yeah. even those scenes you're talking about, they can be interpreted in many different ways. And then even the conversations she has with Bourne, which she thinks are innocent, there's a lot of times when Bourne is frustrated because he only has a child's vocabulary and he's trying to actually get across quite complex concepts or tell her something. <laughs> yeah. And she either doesn't, she doesn't realize it, and not necessarily her fault, but just because there's this communication gap. And so uh, there's a lot of, there's meant to be a lot of different things going on there, more than just a mother and child facsimile relationship. So, so I guess you wouldn't say that there's a, like a Vandermeer verse or anything like that. They're not connected, maybe like in the way Stephen King's oh, novels no, are no, sort no, of connected. No, 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 they're not. I mean, I, there, there is potentially a way in which the moored proxies at the end that disappear are connected to uh, uh, another piece of fiction called The Third Bear that uh, is the mm -hmm. title of an old collection. You know, and, and so there's some other little peripheral things. But no, the Southern Reach is not connected to the Bourne universe. I think it's just... Um, thematically except in this time exploring kind of a, a ruined city as opposed to a more wilderness landscape and so the themes come out differently well with with annihilation and and, and now born being at least option to be adapted to film do you have any interest in adapting any you know earlier works finch for example comes to mind finch which is kind of a noir fantasy and so it has this very strong backbone of, of plot, I think, um, would be an ideal one, especially because I already have in my mind that it, it you know, you could go the full $100 million, you know, special effects route, or you could do it in a very sparse, spare way, mm -hmm. you know, using, you know, maybe an unusual city in the real world as the basis for some of the, the backdrops because the fact of the fact that there's a central mystery and then other things strung off of it can be more or less eye candy. So it could be done in a lot of different ways. I also have this plan, I'm not getting around to it yet, of turning it into a graphic novel. And I'll tell you why, because oh. I have an idea for another novel set in that fictional world of Ambergris set about uh, 15 years after the events of Finch in which the city is kind of paralyzed between different political factions. Some of them, including this woman, Sintra, who's in Finch, coming into play as a major character. Mm. And um, the only way I see it really working is with several different character points of view to the point that you really need a graphic novel or a TV or movie format to make it work. It just doesn't work as a novel because it would just be too many points of view. Um, and so, so my idea is, is to eventually do a graphic novel sequel uh, and that already becomes kind of a storyboard for a movie or a TV series. 
Yeah, no, I think that'd be great. I, I'm, I'm curious, are there any uh, comics that you particularly uh, enjoy? Uh, I love stuff like Frank. I um, can't remember the author of it. It's sitting right here somewhere. And I also like uh, Big Questions by, I guess it's Neil uh, Anders, uh, which is this really weird and wonderful um, chronicle of this airplane that uh, crashes and then these weird snakes and birds kind of like take things from the wreckage and then you follow their stories along with the story of the injured pilot. And it's very surreal, but it's also saying a lot of things about the modern condition. Uh, I also like Linda Berry's comics, uh, and basically they're about creativity in the first place. And of course, I grew up uh, I grew up in the British Commonwealth, so I grew up sure. on Asterix and Tintin comics, as well as <laughs> um, comic book versions of classics from India, like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana um, in comics form. So um, those are kind of embedded. Um, I also like Drinky Crow by Tony Millionaire, which is probably... Be a guilty pleasure yeah. at this point. Drinky coast, it's hard to beat. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I do, I go through phases of just like going through. And Anki Bilal is, I, I like a lot of his stuff. I think mm-hmm. it's quite, quite cool. And, and a lot of the humanoids comic stuff and uh, Mobius, I like quite a bit sure. of. In fact, you know, Born, you know, has as much influence from people like Mobius as it does from other books in terms oh, of a, sure. a literature influence. Cool. All right. Well, that got a little off topic. We don't usually talk about comics here, but uh, <laughs> my my one my one final question for you is something that I've been asking, uh, you know, the fiction writers that we've been lucky enough to have on the podcast is what is what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you sat down to write your first novel? That's a really great question. <laughs> Um, it's a little difficult because I have never written the same novel twice. So the one bit of advice that would be like, hey, don't do this thing, do that thing, is kind of hard uh, to do. And then I was also very formally experimental early, early in my career, and that just requires you to do stuff that's more distancing for the reader sometimes. I mean, if I had advice, it would just be know that you're going to be <laughs> doing stuff that leaves more space for the reader and, and, and also that... You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's tough. I mean, I, I I think the main thing I would say is is hang in there because my early work was published, uh, had a hard time getting published and then was published by small presses. And then the same stuff was picked up by large commercial presses and, and, and now reissued by, by literary presses and whatnot. So um, so really, you know, and this applies to anyone, you know, it's, it's do the thing you're passionate about that's personal to you and interests you and stick to your guns because at the end of the day, it's the actual act of writing that has to be fun, pleasurable, and rewarding for you and everything else, you know, to some degree is out, out of your control. I think that's great advice. Well, well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for being on the podcast. Good luck with the uh, your, your upcoming publications and, and with the release of the film. I think we're all really excited to see it. All right, well, thank you very much for all that. I appreciate being on the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Scrib Chat. I'd like to thank Jeff Vandermeer for taking the time to speak with us about his fantastic work, and I'd like to remind you to go out and see Annihilation on February 23rd. And as a reminder, Born will be released in paperback on February 27th alongside the novella The Strange Bird. And as always, if you're not yet a Scrib member, you can read free for 30 days. All you have to do is visit Scrib.com and sign up. That's Scrib.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks. And we'll see you next time.